<laughs> I think it's now two o'clock. And I would like to welcome all members who have logged into this mini plenary. There will now be an opportunity for silent prayer or meditation. Thank you very much. Honorable members, uh, before I proceed, I just want to remind you that the virtual mini plenary is deemed to be in the precinct of parliament and constitute a meeting of the National Assembly for debating purposes only. In addition to the rules of virtual sittings, the rules of the National Assembly, including the rules of debate will apply. Members enjoy the same powers and privileges that apply in a sitting of the National Assembly. Members should equally note uh, that anything said in the virtual platform is deemed to have been said in the House and may be ruled upon. All members who have logged in shall be considered to be present um, and are requested to mute their microphones and only unmute when recognized to speak. This is because the mics are sensitive and will keep up, keep up noise, which might uh, pick up noise, which might disturb the attention of other members. Uh, when recognized to speak, please unmute your microphone and connect your video. Members may make use of the icons on the bar at the bottom of their screen, which has an option that allows members to put up his or her hand to raise points of order. The secretariat will assist in alerting the chairperson to members re requesting to speak. When using the virtual system, members are asked to refrain or desist from unnecessary points of order and interjections. Uh, honorable members, we shall now proceed to the first order on this mini plenary session, which is subject of discussion for discussion in the name of Honorable OMC Maudwe on calling for an end to International Monetary Fund and World Bank loans. I will now recognize the Honorable Maudwe. Thank you very much, uh, House Chair. House Chair, allow me to take this opportunity to greet the officials of the EFF under the capable leadership of the President and Commander-in-Chief who is appearing before the East London Magistrate Court today on a frivolous case by AfriForum, a racist organization. House Chair, Commander-in-Chief and, Com and Comrade President, we wish him a happy birthday. May God give you the strength, President, to continue with the revolution and wisdom to continue to lead with courage and decisiveness until black Africans, the poor and the working class are economically free here in South Africa, in Africa and the world, the whole of diaspora. 
We will not surrender the EFF to racism because the EFF is the only organization willing to stand up against imperialist institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. We are not afraid. We are not cowards and continue to confront these racist imperialist institutions. We want the money borrowed from the IMF and the World Bank returned to its racist imperialist owners. We are not going to stand by and watch cowards compromise our sovereignty, even at a time when globally it is becoming clear that sovereignty of any nation is a strategic matter and a security matter. Chairperson, allow us to give a dose of reality that the incompetent collective cabinet cannot comprehend. Allow us to explain to South Africans how these loans are nothing but ideological hogwash. The 11.4 billion loan from the World Bank that we borrowed in January is a scam, and we intend to tell our people the truth. Let us begin with the first falsehood and a lie. We are told that we borrowed money from the World Bank because we need we needed more dollars. We were lied to and told that we needed to improve our foreign exchange holdings. At the time of a loan, House Chair, South Africa had enough foreign reserves to cover imports and foreign debt service costs. Unfortunately, this incompetence has exposed us all to unnecessary risk if the range depreciates. We are told that the state needs to borrow externally. This is misguided, and only incompetent people will believe this nonsense. The government employees' pension fund is overfunded, and the PIC is sitting with excess funds enough to get rid of ESCOM debt, reindustrialize denial, rebuild transnet capacity, and invest in productive sectors of the economy. We are told that we must continue with austerity. We must continue with cuts of education, social grants, essential infrastructure and salaries for public servants. And this somehow will contribute contribute to job creation and economic growth. Chairperson, if we are honest, no one here can deny that the National Treasury, captured by Washington institutions and rating agencies in the New York, has failed to perform its functions in the interest of workers and the poor. It is a failure to have a debt to GDP ratio that will soon be above 80% with total debt of more than 4.3 trillion and you have nothing to show for it. We're borrowing to pay for expenses that are not going anywhere. We'll, We'll still need to pay for salaries, consumables and other expenses tomorrow. We must not stand by and watch us unassuming observers continue to watch to shower the national children with praises when we know that the history of the IMF structural adjustments program that has caused unimaginable devastation in the South. We know that the ruling party, uh, House Chair, and the incompetent cabinet collective do not have the understanding or capacity to rescue the situation we find ourselves in. Some people are taking advantage of, the, of this incompetence and making millions out of all these loans with the IMF and the World Bank. And it has nothing to do with economic growth or development as a country. Instead of collecting all these senseless loans from the IMF and the World Bank, South Africa should enter into meaningful development partnerships with China. We must enter into partnerships that will build water, transport, sanitation, housing, and education infrastructure. We must build high-speed trains from Musina to Johannesburg, from Johannesburg to Cape Town, from Johannesburg to Durban, and from Pretoria to Moloto. We must build high-speed internet infrastructure in all rural areas. We must improve and expand our road networks from Bay Bridge border all the way down to the sea point. We must build new cities with new industries to depopulate Johannesburg, Devon, and Cape Town, and not just rebrand existing old industries that are empty with no meaningful economic activities. Since 2000, China's state-owned banks and construction companies have spent more than 18 trillion, 1.8 trillion in mega infrastructure programs, developmental partnerships, and loans in the African continent. 
The footprint of all these investments includes the following. A 969 kilometer standard gauge rail project from Mombasa to Nairobi in Kenya. A 157 kilometers Lagos Ibadan railway project in Nigeria at a cost of 1.5 billion US dollars. 753 kilometers railway project between Ethiopia to Djibouti at the cost of 2.5 billion dollars. The project also includes a 341 kilometers Mwanza Isaka standard gauge railway in Tanzania. Um, Niger project in Angola, Nigeria, capital cities in Tanzania, Egypt, and many other projects. If you're going to sit here and wait for the West to build back better world and global gateway programs by the US, it's not going to happen. And that is a fact. It is not going to happen. So we must do things differently, which means we explore known resources and partnership. It is undisputable fact, House Chair, that loans from the IMF and World Bank have changed the underdevelopment of countries that have a history of being colonized, and they turn sovereign nations into children of the West. If this government insists on being breastfed in your colonial policies by the US, the UK, and global imperialists, they must not involve us. We want to build an independent country and continent that will compete on the global stage as an equal, not as a beggar looking for handouts from loan sharks who abuse us and tell us when to jump and when, when to ask and ask us how high to jump. Remove us from your inability to manage money and your compulsive problems with debt. We don't want loans from the IMF and the World Bank. They must all be returned. I thank you, Hashem. Thank you, Honorable Maude. As we proceed, we call on the Honorable Mabileta. Thank you, House Chair. Honorable members, House Chair, in the build-up of this motion for debate, the sponsors have tried to manufacture a narrative and then support it with fallacies, all in an attempt to appear to be relevant on the subject matter. On the 1st February, we held a finance committee meeting that dealt with the matter on the World Bank Development Policy concessional loan of approximately 11 billion rand. The sponsors of the motion wanted us to believe that in accepting the loan, we have entered into a structural adjust adjustment program. We have accepted no liberalism and the sovereignty of the country had been threatened. But by the end of that meeting, the sponsors were talking to themselves and no one was interested in their rhetoric. A political party that does not develop the move with the times fails to correctly analyze issues and instead substitute rhetoric for analysis and critique. Fails to understand that nothing is static and that change is constant. Is a political party that at some stage will become irrelevant because facts and evidence no longer guide it, but rhetoric does. Our sovereignty is not being threatened. The law needs to be considered with the context of South Africa in recent years, having taken loans from other international financial institutions in order to manage the requirements for increased borrowing due to the measures in response to the COVID-19 a pandemic. This includes 4.3 billion US dollar loan from the International Monetary Fund under the rapid financing instruments in July 2020. The 300 
million US dollar loan from the African Development Bank in July 2020 and the 2 billion US dollar support dispersed from the New Development Bank. The choice of loans is within the broader plan on how to manage debt in, in, in a manner that is sustained. Consistency in this regard is important. The historic ANC view and stance towards both the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank was, was to critique way funding and programs led to understand development in developing countries and in a number of cases, changes of government, sometimes brutally as part of a broader initiative. These are all historic facts. And after 1994, the South African government began the process of engaging both institutions together with other groups who seek to change the orientation of both institutions. It was a process of unity and the struggle of opposites that both influenced and led to the changes in financing arrangements, acceptance of national sovereignty, and the right to determine economic and political direction that resulted in major rethinks in both institution, institutions. Above all, it was to measure that there was respect for the economic policies and decision of each country that South Africa lobbied for. Of course, further change is necessary, but we cannot enter this debate as the sponsors do, as if we are in the 1980s sitting with the burden of a structural adjustment program. We remain part of the non-aligned uh, movement and are critical of countries and institutions who seek to impose their thinking ideology and economic influence as a prescription of the whole world. We are deeply conscious that there are certain countries who seek to influence a glo global economic order that fits their economic world interest and prescription as well as access to mineral resources. This is nothing new and is part of our struggle for a more equitable global economic world order. We remain entrenched in an independent foreign and economic policy and consider ourselves as part of the progressive world movement. It is within this context that we enter into discussions of financing arrangements with any institution. We borrow money to meet different growth and development needs that cannot be financed through revenue collection, especially where, where we run a budget deficit. We also borrow to refinance outstanding debt that is maturing. With both the IMF and World Bank loans, these are non-marketable debt, which is debt which cannot be bought and sold in the secondary market as is issued by international finance institution. The key advantage of any government who use the non-marketable debt route is the national treasury, uh, as the national treasury has done, is that you usually have more influence over the borrowing cost. This is exactly what has happened with the World Bank loan, which is concessional and includes three years in which no payment is required, which allows treasury and, and time to stabilize and reduce debt. All of these, the sponsors of the motion just conventionally don't mention. On the counter side, 
lenders of non-marketable debts may have quite a bit of influence over the over the policy and budgetary choices of the government. So what are the facts in this regard? If we take the World Bank loan, it is financing South African government policy, not any other policy. It is financing government's economic recovery program and COVID response policy strategy. The sponsors of this debate deal with subject matter as if the institutions we are talking about are some alien international economic structure and call for an end to all such loans. South Africa is part of the World Bank. We hold 0.8% shareholding in it precisely so we can influence and play a role in it. The same applies to other international financial institutions that we play a part in, including the New Development Bank and African Development Bank. The problem which called for a debate is based, is based on the emotional fallacies, is that emotion itself gets used to pursue it with no argument to support it. The historic legacies of both the IMF and World Bank are not the sum total of the current uh, conjunction. The World Bank changed its approach to lending after the failure and damage of imposing structural adjustment on developing countries during the 1980s. There is a distinction between the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, some, something the, the motion seeks to ignore. But the fundamental flaw of the motion for this debate is that we are being called upon to end these types of loans without examining the character and content of these loans, what they are meant to address and how they support government policy and what the preconditions are. On this matter, we have been told there are conditions. Again, this, again, this just shows the sponsors of the motion really poor understanding of both marketable and non-marketable debt. In the case of the IMF, IMF and World Bank, there are no, not conditions but linked all debt, but it applies to all of us. And applicant meets preconditions. If one examines the debt levels, of South Africa. Our reliance on international financing institutions is, is extremely low, which is one of our strengths. The overwhelming part of South African debt is taken up in marketable debt secondary markets. Yet, we are being told to end loans from IMF and World Bank instead of focusing on where the bulk of our debt is and the preconditions applicable. So if our sovereignty is threatened, as if sponsors say, how is it threatened? If we use both loans that we have with IMF and World Bank, show us, show us the evidence of where the sovereignty is threatened based on, a, on these two loans. The problem with the sponsors of the motion is that they again have chosen the wrong motion for debate because they chase emotional first fallacies instead of choosing a debate that looks at policy, governance, debt levels, and non-marketable debt. In conclusion, the EFF lecturing government about transparency and openness is rich coming from a party who are closed in secrecy about where their money comes from. Openness and transparency are not, are not a hallmark of the EFF. The Party Political Funding Act showed that entire notion just how slow and reluctant 
to the revise the EFF Act when it comes to disclosure of financial sources. Of course, it must be difficult given the EFF leadership lifestyle and the flow of cash, all indicators of another story. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Mama Bileza. We proceed and call on the Honorable Dr. George. Thank you, Chairperson. Date is not always bad. It can play a useful role in providing money to achieve a particular outcome. For households, properly managed, a loan can enable the purchase of a home that can in time contribute to the creation of intergenerational wealth. It can fund business startups and vehicle finance to enable economic activity. Incorrectly managed, debt can become an incredible burden as experienced by many South African households. This happens when too much money is borrowed and paying back the loan becomes unaffordable. When this happens, there is no money to buy what, what the household needs because debt repayments are too high. This is no different for government, with the exception that government can pay back its loans with money it does not have. It can take the people's tax money to pay its creditors. In his last budget speech, Minister Mbaweni said we owe a lot of people a lot of money. This was a staggering understatement. What he should have said is we borrow as much as we can get from anyone who will lend it to us and now we're in very deep trouble. Government sells bonds into the domestic market, repays an annual interest and then retires the debt at a future date. Domestic debt is a safer bet because there is no currency risk as the debt is repaid in rand. South Africa borrows heavily on the global markets because the domestic market is not big enough. This creates a one-way bet on the RAND because we need to sell RAND to buy the foreign currency to repay the interest and the capital amount borrowed. As the RAND gets weaker, the cost of debt increases. When it becomes difficult to borrow money on the domestic and foreign markets, another lender must be found, and this is the lender of last resort, the World Bank and the IMF. All lenders, including these, will want to ensure that their money is repaid. In July 2020, the International Monetary Fund approved a 70 billion rand loan, supposedly to help South Africa manage the immediate consequences of the COVID pandemic. At that time, government advised the IMF that it intended to take steps to stabilize its finances to ensure repayment is possible. We already know that our finances are not stable, especially given expenditure on the bloated public sector wage bill and never-ending bailouts to state-owned enterprises and that economic growth is not being stimulated. Before COVID reached South Africa, the gross mismanagement of the public finances had already reached crisis proportions and the Treasury and the Treasury being able to quickly obtain a loan from, through the IMF's rapid financing instrument was not an opportunity to be missed. According to the National Treasury, it planned to use the money to support health and frontline services, to protect the vulnerable, drive job creation, support economic reform, and stabilize public debt. The minister needs to tell us if the money was received and what government spent it on, because there was no job creation, no economic reform, and no debt stabilization. In January this year, government took another 11 billion rand loan, this time from the World Bank, apparently to strengthen its pandemic response. There has been no further detail. When the Finance Committee convened to ask the minister about the loan, he arrived 30 minutes late, spoke for a minute, and provided no detail on the repayment terms of the loan. It seems that the loan has been factored into the primary budget, so the impact is unknown. The minister needs to tell us what government has done with the money. 
What we do know is that interest on debt repayment will cost South African taxpayers over 1 trillion rand in the next three years, more than health, basic education, and peace and security. Government needs to borrow excessively because it has mismanaged the people's money. Reckless borrowing will not facilitate economic growth, will not generate jobs, and will not fight unemployment and poverty. In his State of the Nation address, President Ramaphosa spoke of business being the generator of jobs in our economy, a significant departure from the discredited notion that government is able to do this. A capable, enabling, a capable state enabling business to thrive is what we need, but don't have. No amount of borrowing can fix what the ANC has broken. If we stay on the current track without reform to attract domestic and foreign investment and to encourage domestic savings, and if the public sector wage bill and the state-owned enterprises aren't reined in, we are going to default on our ballooning debt repayments. We're on the verge of another global economic crisis, this time triggered by Russia's illegal invasion of the Ukraine. The European economy will be negatively affected as they prepare to fight Russian aggression via economic sanctions. The Russian economy is already imploding as the financial war on it intensifies in retaliation for its aggression. South Africa will be caught in the crossfire and our fragile economy will be battered even more. The problem with South African debt is that it is not funding growth. It is funding current consumption expenditure, much of it fruitless and wasteful. This is reckless and irresponsible borrowing behavior and we will default if we don't implement necessary reform. It is possible to reverse the immeasurable damage inflicted on our economy by the ANC government. The answer is not discontinuing loans from the IMF and the World Bank. Properly applied, the money could be used beneficially at a favorable interest rate. Government needs to attract domestic and foreign investment capital and make domestic saving easier. As our economy grows and revenue rises, public debt can perform the function that it should to fund economic enablers and not to paper over the cracks of grossly mismanaged public finance as it does now. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable uh, George. Uh, we now go to Mema Josie. Thank you, Honorable House Chairperson. It is undeniable that the global pandemic had a continuous to have a devastating social and economic impact on the livelihoods of ordinary South Africans, coupled with an uncertainty of the impact of the invasions of the Ukraine on the global market. South Africa's economic forecast reflects, sorry, a very grim picture. The Minister of Finance recent budget speech steadily reflected the mammoth task at hand with an average expected GDP growth rate of only 1.8% over the next three years. The AFP has very little confidence in the government's ability to rebuild and salvage or an already sinking ship. The Auditor General's most recent reports on government spending painted a grim picture of the financial health of South Africa's state-owned entities. And we emphasize with shock that the seven SOEs simply failed to submit their financial statements. This lack of financial discipline is time and again simply accepted with no consequences or accountability. It is against this background of the regression of SOEs and shocking reports of the extent of corruption in the coordination of South Africa's COVID-19 relief funds, as well as the looting of vulnerable financial aid meant for those suffering the most. 
that the IFP remains highly concerned about the massive loans received from global institutions such as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Although the $4.3 billion loan from the IMF has been described as a low interest loan under the IMF's rapid financing instrument to counter the adverse social and economic impact of the pandemic. Very little information has been provided on the conditions of the loan and how the government intends to service this debt over the next five years. In light of the dire state of our economy and the fact that our government is under serious pressure to service our country debt, our current debt, the public has every right to transparency on how our government will spend these loans and how they intend to repay them. We furthermore cannot dismiss valid concerns on the potential prescriptive influence of the IMF on government's policy, especially in developing countries. As pointed out in the recent report by the South African Institute of International Affairs on the potential role of the IMF in supporting South Africa's just transition. The IMF's track record in Africa and the developing world has been checked. The SAIIA report emphasizes that to overcome these perceptions, the process of arriving at loan conditionality needs to be more consultative and transparent with meaningful input from non-state actors. In conclusion, the IFP stresses that a loan is not bad if utilized for a good purpose, but the government instills very little confidence that these massive loans by global institutions will not be subjected to looting by corrupt government officials. The people of South Africa have every right to this information, and IFP therefore demands accountability and transparency in how these funds will be spent, repaid, and protected for further looting. I thank you. Thank you, Honorable Majosi. Can I now invite the Honorable F.J. Mulder? Thank you, Honorable House Chair. South Africa cannot live beyond, beyond its means. And I want to repeat this, Honorable House Chair, South Africa cannot live beyond its means. And debt has to be managed through reforms, cuts in public spending, reining in excesses of state-owned enterprises and dealing with endemic corruption. The spectacle of government insiders benefiting from COVID-19-related procurement and contracts is a sad indictment of President Ramaphosa's inability to deal with institutional corruption, which seems to have permitted almost every echelon of local provincial and national government. Since 2007, Honorable House Chair, the ANC could not do anything right. It wants minimal state intervention with the private sector assuming a much greater role in managing the economy, while a real threat exists that the money will be squandered without building safeguards in terms of transparency and the use of proceeds. Former Finance Minister Mgueni acknowledged that South Africa had accumulated too much debt and that the COVID-19 downturn will add even more. Out of every rand in 2020 that South Africans paid in tax, 21 cents went to paying interest on our past debts. Honorable Chair, the former minister dismissed critics of the loan of making a mountain of an anthill. 
In June 2020, he got the 1 billion COVID-19 emergency loan from the New Development Bank, the multilateral development bank established by the BRIC states. Further loans from the World Bank and African Development Bank also came into play. Rather than the International Monetary Fund being the holy grail of economic bailouts, there are doubts as to whether its oversight structures are fit for purpose. Although the authorities have committed to manage IMF's emergency financial assistance with full transparency and accountability, the fund was naive to approve the loan largely on the staff assessments of former Minister Nguyen's aspirations to introduce reforms and manage the economy better. House Chair, the National Treasury is rightly commended as a bastion of budget transparency, but further down the funding chain, oversight seems to dissipate. The IMF's assertion that the public procurement system has been revamped to address the weaknesses that facilitate state capture is surprising given the spate of allegations of fraud and misuse of funds that surface routinely. Regularly publishing and auditing all COVID-19 related expenditures and disseminating all of procurement contracts and allocations without details awarded companies and their beneficial owners. That's what we're sitting with. But this will help. But is there diligent and impartial execution that remains in question? In conclusion, Honorable House Chair, the South African government exposure in this instance is too high and represents a significant risk to debt sustainability and public finances. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Murda. Uh, honorable uh, members, I don't have a name from ATM. Are they by any chance in the platform? No, we proceed to Honorable Sheikh Imam. Thank you, Honorable House Chairperson. <clears throat> Honorable House Chairperson, taking loans is not a problem, particularly if it is going to be used in the correct manner for infrastructure development, for enhancing one's business, but not being in a position to be able to pay back that debt is a problem. Now, I want to give you some statistics, uh, Chairperson. Low-income countries are in debt to the tune of $860 billion as at 2020, which rose by 12%. Greece faced a sovereign debt crisis as a result of their fiscal policies and that is as a result of too much of spending. Something that our minister have repeatedly highlighted that we need to reduce our expenditure. Okay. And another cause for the crisis that Greece found itself was its liberal welfare policies. Now, Chairperson, it's very good to come out and say, we'll give 3,000, we'll give 4,000, we'll give 5,000 rand a month. That is not the solution. The solution is to ensure that you have a more inclusive economy, a more productive society, so that people would be able to live with comfort. Now, what we have is a bloated, inefficient economy currently. The IMF global debt is sitting at $226 trillion 
which is another increase by 20% since 2020. Now, one of the greatest risks you face is that if you do not pay this debt, it means like if you took a loan and if you do not pay, they will attach your assets. It's exactly what they will do here, like in Zambia. Now, the question is, if we say that the country belongs to all who live in it, how is it a few of us take the decision to borrow and borrow and borrow? When we are not able to pay, who is it going to impact on? It is going to impact on the 59 million people in the country. It means that we will find ourselves in a state of bankruptcy. Creditors will file for bankruptcy and they will attach our assets. That's what it simply means. Now, there is no problem in borrowing, like I said, if we can use it effectively, like we have repeatedly spoken about infrastructure development. But we know we don't have the capacity. Currently, we are borrowing as a result of most of our money going towards consumption. And that is not acceptable. Now, can you imagine if your assets in this country is attached because we borrowed and did not use it? optimally to be able to turn that money into profits. Your time has expired, Honorable. Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. I have so much more to say, but I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, again, uh, I don't have a name for the AIC. Do they have, are they in? None? COPE? Nobody? PAC? Nobody. The Honorable Hendricks Aljama. Your name is here. Mm. I don't see Honorable Hendricks on this, on the participants list. I will proceed to the DA and call on the Honorable Sarukan. Thank you very much, Madam House Chair. Madam House Chair, the debate started with a critique of the IMF and World Bank. And this would be entirely correct, as the ANC speaker said, if we were debating in 1982 and not 2022. Structural adjustment programs are not part of the requirements for loans anymore. And any modern and contemporary critique of the World Bank system is that they no longer ask for reforms other than making expenditure not exceed revenue and honoring debt commitments. There is nothing else to it at the moment. In any event, it would be better to focus our attention in this debate on why we even need to have this debate. And that is because we have a government that is addicted to debt and borrowing money at a rate of knots. Under normal circumstances, this would be fine if it was invested into the growth of the economy. But the debt over the last 12 years was not. It was not spent in capital projects or sorely needed infrastructure. It was spent in salaries and bloating the civil service. To give you an example, government now spends 30 billion rand a year and 30,000 managerial posts where people earn more than 1 million rand a year each. Most of these are cater deployments from the governing party. In 2019 alone, 2.6 billion rand was spent on bonuses for these millionaire managers. And between 2000 and 2020, this government spent nearly 200 billion rand on bailing out corrupt, inept, looted and inefficient state-owned enterprises. In the meantime, investments into new dams, repairing roads, the revitalizing rail, and other enablers of economic activity was neglected. And all that we've learned from this experiment of borrowing money and then spending it to employ incompetent cadres or letting associates loot is that it is not a good way to grow the economy or contain debt. 
But South Africa is stuck in the situation and we will need to borrow money for critical infrastructure investment in the future. And we should ask ourselves, where will the money come from and what will we do with it? And if you ask some in this chamber, they will say that we should borrow from China and that's fine. Except that the Chinese ambassador to South Africa said in 2019, and I quote, ESCOM is a debt trap. China gave them some loans before, and now they've become very cautious. It's an issue of management capacity, close quote. He questioned governance at SOEs quite pointedly. He further said that Chinese investors want more than grand ideas or concepts. He said that Chinese investors want to see favorable investment conditions protected by the rule of law, as well as proper, fe proper feasibility studies that can reassure the Chinese of the profitability and sustainability of projects. Many of the concerns mentioned by the Chinese are the exact same concerns mentioned by rating agencies, the World Bank, the IMF, and others. All of these institutions, both from the East and the West, are sounding the alarm bells about the fiscal trajectory of South Africa's economy. And we should be agnostic as to the politics in this debate and focus more on how we contain our debt and get our economy moving forward. We can't be expected to debate strawman arguments that are no longer applicable. But this is unsurprising as the proposers of this debate seem to inhabit a world where the Soviet Union still exists. And I recommend they visit the Berlin Wall to learn about what happened to the world after the 1980s. What the real issue is, is that our government is not prepared to make difficult choices to invest in bulk water infrastructure instead of tenders for caters, or to invest in new hospitals rather than bailing out SOEs, or to hire more police officers rather than paying bonuses to millionaire managers. Let us not get distracted by 1980s politics and old outmoded ideas and focus on the real issues that matter to ordinary South Africans. Thank you very much, Madam Speaker. Madam House Chair. Thank you, Honorable Sarupin. Thank you. We proceed now and uh, call on the Honorable the Deputy Minister of Finance, uh, Dr. Masonto. Thanks, House uh, Chair. Um, this morning we buried uh, the former SASCO president, South African Student Congress President Mandla Mabuza, who played a major role um, in the transformation of higher education. And he was an activist in the late apartheid and during negotiations. May he so rest in peace. Uh, Chair, I think let me try to. Um, in a way, uh, reiterate about four reasons why we took the World Bank loan. And I think some of the colleagues um, on this platform, they've already articulated the reasons for us having to uh, borrow this money. And uh, we do also take the caution that uh, the borrowing it's not a sustainable way of um, financing our expenditure. But secondly, borrowing in itself, it's not bad. It depends what you borrow for. And unfortunately, we've said this before, that we've been borrowing largely to finance SOEs. Uh, 293 from 2013, uh, as the minister indicated in the speech, in the budget speech, uh, Minister Kolongwane, was basically utilized to finance uh, ailing SOEs, and that also eroded um, our uh, budget baselines uh, of department. So we, we fully agree that uh, you cannot borrow just to finance uh, failing SOEs, uh, borrowing just to finance uh, consumption. 
But this loan, we went out to borrow in order to deal with the um, budget uh, revenue shortfalls uh, as a result of the impact of the pandemic, particularly in the uh, 2020. And we do accept that even before um, the uh, COVID, our economy was already in trouble. And that the lesson from this is that I think we do need to focus on the growing our economy, undertaking those structural reforms, because countries that were stronger, the fundamentals were stronger, um, when COVID hit, when this shock hit the economies, they were in a much better position to absorb the shock. So we were weak, and we had to go and get extra money from um, um uh, uh, World Bank, and therefore this underscores the point that it's important that we really focus on the fundamentals in growing our economy and whatever we borrow should be channeled towards building the fundamentals uh, of our economy. Um, Chair, you know, we, we borrow every week as, as the National Treasury uh, to finance our deficit. We borrow 19 billion every week. So what we got from the IMF, I mean from the World Bank, um, it's smaller compared to what we do almost every week in terms of borrowing to finance uh, our our deficit. And, um, and and part of the reason why we had to approach this multilateral development banks for budget uh, support loan, it was also to diversify the funding sources, and we've said this before, that uh, this is also cheaper um, money compared to what we pay on the capital market as we borrow on a weekly basis. And part of the reason why um, this or World Bank loans uh, generally are cheaper or from this uh, multilateral development banks is because they borrow themselves at low rates on international markets. And I mean, for instance, the, U- the World Bank uses this leverage to offer their members, including ourselves, because we are members uh, of these uh, multilateral institutions to offer us uh, lower rates than we would receive if we were to go on the, to, to, the, to the market uh, directly. So I think um, we, we looked around, and I think it's it's in the interest of South Africa that uh, we borrow uh, cheaper uh, so that we don't pay high uh, debt service costs. And I think we've also said that uh, there are no conditions attached to, to, to the loan. Uh, it's a budget support loan uh, to assist government in dealing with the impact of covid and, uh, and of course, before a country receives a development policy loans, the World Bank must confirm um, the microeconomic policy uh, framework, whether it is adequate or not. And I think they were uh, satisfied with our uh, microeconomic uh, uh, outlook. Uh, so, and, and I think the question raised about the what are the terms of... Uh, these development policy loans. Firstly, like I said, it's a low interest. Um, it's, it's a low interest loan, 
with a 13-year repayment period, including a grace period of three years. And the loan is based on a reference rate, which can change, but it is cheaper uh, than what we get, like I said, from the capital markets. And uh, this complements the government debt strategy to reduce its debt service costs and uh, by making use of cheaper sources of, uh, of finance. But I think just as my parting showed, um, yes, borrowing, uh, particularly for consumption, is not sustainable. We've got to um, borrow to finance the uh, um, strengthening of our economy, particularly for infrastructure. And I think we do need to avoid, uh, if, if we are to avoid uh, going to the World Bank and the IMF and then protect our sovereignty, we need to watch very, very carefully our, uh, our debt. I mean, it's $4 trillion now. And if we don't uh, uh, keep it on a sustainable uh, level, it is at that point that uh, will, our sovereignty will be undermined. And therefore, it's important, therefore, for, uh, in our view, for colleagues to support the budget that the, uh, the, the minister uh, presented a week or two weeks ago, because it is trying to do exactly that, that we should not uh, keep our debt uh, to unsustainable levels, because if we do so, we will be in trouble, and that's when we will have set the material conditions for us to go and lose our sovereignty. At the moment, this loan that uh, we've just been discussing or debating, it doesn't at all threaten our sovereignty. Thank you, House Chair. Thank you, Deputy Minister, uh, Dr. Masonto. We will now call back the Honorable Maudu. Thank you very much, you, House you. Chair. Okay, thank you, House Chair. House Chair, the Deputy Minister just said that he agrees that you can't borrow money to for consumption. That's unsustainable. But they're doing that. And that's the point that we're debating today. That you took 11.4 billion rands. You have not used that money on any project that seeks to generate revenue so that you can service the loan. You took it to pay the debt. So you are borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. You are not assisting anyway. But anyway, National uh, House Chair, let me engage everybody who has debated. You know, House Chair, when we heard that the Deputy Minister of Finance, the very same one, Dr. David Masson, was on TV telling people that President Sir Ramaphosa was wrong to say government does not create jobs, but it is the job of the private sector. We thought that there was still some sense of class consciousness. But after what we heard here today, we're tempted to blame this on naivety if it is not a matter of incompetence, honestly. We're not saying the IMF and the World Bank is going to take over. We're saying that the IMF and the World Bank have long controlled the national treasury and called the shots with willing participants and cheerleaders there in Pretoria. We're saying this has gone on for far too long and challenged and it will come, to, it has to come to an end. We will take over power in South Africa as the EFF, and we will show our people that there is life outside Washington consensus commandments. We will show our people that 
We do not have to worship the IMF and the World Bank to build our own infrastructure. We say this, House Chair, because we know that despite some attempts to confuse matters, the 1993 IMF loan was used by the Treasury to shove down our throats neoliberal policies. The World Bank loan to build Midupian Kusile was used to loot state money from the public press. He just said now that they wanted to take money to fund the SOEs. Which SOEs? Because these SOEs are crying on a daily basis that they don't have money. Their budget has been cut. They can't do anything. ESCOM is saying the same thing. Dinell is saying the same thing. SAE has collapsed. So which SOEs exactly is he talking about? Now, I'll share. There are, there are these new loans that, that they were just taken. They are going to be shoved down our throat again as a misguided energy policy to collapse ESCOM and privatization of strategic state-owned entities. There are people who are gambling with our future on things they have very little understanding on, and it is very dangerous. And those people are old people that will not be here when we inherit this country being bankrupt. It is time you all take a very close look at the National Treasury and understand the intention of these so-called economists and understand their real agenda. We didn't expect anything meaningful from the ANC backbenchers who don't pay attention to global dynamics. They are talking about change in the IMF and World Bank as if they even know what these institutions were meant to do. We'll continue to raise consciousness. These backbenchers of the ANC, they don't even know what the word fallacy means. There is no modern critique of the IMF and the World Bank. People must not believe their own lies. It is very dangerous. Structural adjustment simply means that you take the IMF money and adopt their policies. Why would they demand adjustments if you're already swimming deep in neoliberalism? This idea that we are not transparent about who funds the EFF is just a lousy attempt to divert attention from the debate. We declared to the IEC when we received the grants there last month, we declared. They were published this month. So how can you still come here and say we are not transparent about our funders when they are there out in the open? Um, House Chair, we didn't expect anything from the racist DA. To them, everything Western that advances imperialism is taken as gospel truth. We're not going to waste our time with them. They don't deserve our attention at all. They come here and tell us that the rush by the initial treasury to the IMF was an opportunity not to be missed. What an ideological driven agenda is that? But we are not surprised because the DA and the NC seems to be sipping water from the same jet. Our people must believe us when we tell them that the DA is an economic policy division under President Ramaphosa's presidency. We're not saying borrow from China to pay salaries. Let the Chinese companies bring wealth of experience to share and build a bad social infrastructure here in South Africa. White people continue to spend and accumulate according to 1950s, 60s, and 70s apartheid policies. Allow me to conclude, House Chair, that we didn't say much about what the Minister of Finance said during the Portfolio Committee meeting that he requested the chairperson to convene to receive detailed brief on the loans. He came to the meeting like he didn't know that there was a meeting when he woke up that morning. We understand that global policies are difficult. They are very difficult and require people to have their eyes on a lot of moving puzzles. And you know that the ruling party does not have the capacity. They do not have capacity to look at simple puzzles here at home. IMF and World Bank continue to champion imperialism through neoliberal policies. South Africa is just another neo-colonial nation with a misguided and political naive group. That is the biggest misfortune that has happened to our country. I thank you, Aushe. I thank you, Honorable Maute, and I thank all the participants in this mini plenary and uh, 
say thank you because even the numbers show the seriousness of our mini plenaries. Honorable members, that concludes the debate and the business of this virtual mini plenary session. And the mini plenary will now rise. Thank you very much. As reason. Okay, I've just been uh, informed that uh, Mr. Mashaule, the second mini plenary was supposed to start at uh, uh, 15.30, but I will proceed to that if this is the same um, link that we have to use. Am I correct that it is the same link, uh, Honorable yeah, Member? it's the same link, Chairperson. Okay, no. Uh, then I will and thank you very much. Uh, oh, thank you, Mr. Makaule is there. Thank you, Mr. Makaule, proceed. Thank, thank you. you very much, House uh, Chair uh, Muroto. We shall now proceed to the second order of this mini plenary session, which is a subject for discussion in the name of Honorable T.N. Mutle on strengthening the security cluster and mobilizing society for peace and stability in South Africa, in the region, and in Africa. I now recognize the Honorable T.N. Mutle to the platform. Yeah, th thank you, Honorable uh, House Chair, members of the House, uh, fellow compatriots and friends, uh, good afternoon. I deem it appropriate, Chair, before I even start with the debate, to pay tribute to the South African hit maker, uh, Ricardo Macado, aka Riki Riki, who was Zonke, uh, the cotton eater, who passed away last week. We wish to send our heartfelt condolences to his family, friends, fans, and the music industry, and all who knew him. May his soul rest in eternal peace. Uh, House Chair, this year marked 25 years since our internationally acclaimed constitution, which uh, contains the Bill of Rights in the second uh, chapter, uh, in its second chapter, which came into effect. The roots of our 
Constitution and Bill of Rights are well placed in the founding document of the African National Congress. Convened in Bloemfontein in 1923, the ANC adopted the, B, the African Bill of Rights. The central theme of the African Bill of Rights were the demand for land, freedom, the inequality of all citizens before the law, and justice. Two decades later, Chair, in 1943, the African claim document was adopted. It comes as no surprise that uh, the anti-apartheid activist and former constitutional court judge, Judge uh, Albisage, posed this question in, in 2017. If you, were to, if you were to do a paternity test of the South African constitution, uh, whose DNA would you discover? As I, I've quoted, his response was uh, none other than the long-serving president of the NC, uh, Oliver Tambo. Our constitution chair, is a product of decade of struggle. It comes against the backdrop of a history of colonialism and apartheid, a central feature of which was inequality based on race, class, and gender. As the Freedom Charter declared that no government can justly claim authority unless it is based on the will of the people. The authority of the government of the day come from the, from the people through the constitution. Through the constitution, people are able to express themselves and have their rights enforced. As the African National Congress, we remain committed to the constitution, its ideals and values. House Chair, the aftermath of the July unrest had had a negative impact on our economy as well as the security cluster. Many businesses have closed down, people lost their livelihoods. The economic reconstruction and recovery plan as presented by the president is critical for boosting our economy. It is common cause that for the economy to flourish, the environment must be safe, uh, the safety and security of the people and business must be guaranteed. House Chair, uh, we assist with uh, the, the pandemic of uh, gender-based violence uh, and gender-based violence and femicide continued as a pandemic in the country that was there even before the declaration of uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. The level of GBVF are unacceptably high. It is it is as though the lives of women and children do not matter. Surely this needs to change. The status quo cannot continue to exist. Dismantling patriarchy and addressing the violence culture in our society is critical. Notwithstanding all the challenges encountered, we appreciate the report that gender-based violence and femicide is a priority crime in the South African police service. We acknowledge the department's efforts to implement the turnaround strategy to deal with the DNA backlog. Through the ministerial intervention, 17 critical contracts for DNA consumable have since been awarded. Forensic laboratories have been capacitated with 19 interns to fill a critical position. 40% of human resources are dedicated to addressing the backlog, and 60% of human resources is dedicated to incoming cases. It was reported between April uh, last year and 10 February this year that 196 persons accused of GB, GBV were being handed down 272 life sentences. We appreciate that the three bills which uh, are meant to address GBV have been signed. 
into law by the president. The African National Congress government is taking collaborative approach to ensure that no effort is spared to reach out to survivors and to address this sketch. The efforts to fight GBV are welcome. However, it is the root cause of GBVF which must be plucked out. We need to restore our societal values of Ubuntu. We need to empower women so that they can be uh, economically emancipated. We need to uproot the demon of patriarchy. The fight against gender-based violence will not be won by government alone. We call upon civil society, the private sector, faith-based organization, Amajimbo, Sebonka Wolova, leading Kabika Ofela, including Lemale, Mabuto and everyone to join hands. Men must be at the center of this fight. Women should never have to fight the gender-based violence alone. Chairperson, high levels of unemployment and uh, the use of drugs result in our young people turning to a life of crime, which poses a risk uh, to the security of the country. Government has made a call for communities to work with police and be part of the solution in the fight against crime. It was announced that funds were made available uh, for the administration to capacitate uh, the uh, the administration of the South African Police Service. Uh, An announcement has been made that they'll recruit uh, 12,000 young people to come into the rank and to assist in combating the challenges that uh, uh, we are faced with uh, particularly in the space of the South African Police Service. The Department of Justice and Constitutional Development has established two more specialized commercial crimes courts in Mtata and East London in the Eastern Cape to bolster the efforts to fight against corruption. Two more specialized courts in Palm Ridge and Pretoria North in Kautem were also enhanced. All provinces in the Republic now have dedicated S-triple-C's uh, Chairperson, the investigating directorate with its multidisciplinary approach brings uh, prosecutors, investigators, and analysts uh, together in order to combat serious complex and high-profile corruption. This is the cornerstone of addressing corruption. The Deputy Chief Justice Zondo handed over a third part of the commission's report. The commission first report uh, recommends that the system to protect whistleblowers who are a vital safeguard uh, in the fight against corruption and who take huge personal risk in reporting wrongdoing must be strengthened. The NC government has said before and repeats that uh, any individual and companies that are involved in wrongdoing must take responsibility uh, and be held to account. Chairperson, Uh, In the space of the defense, we have uh, deployed as the country South African National Defense Force in the DRC and Mozambique in peacekeeping uh, mission, uh, which which means we seek to ensure stability in the region and displace, displace our attitude for peace and human rights in the continent. Our soldiers has heated the call against the backdrop of budgetary constraint, which we have uh, raised several in several occasions uh, uh, in these platforms, uh, several times that for any economy to flourish, it must be accompanied by a strong security sector, which well, is adequately funded. I thank you, Chair. I thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. 
Uh, we'll now move to Honourable Whitfield. Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. Uh, I think Honourable Mutley has today proven very well that the ANC will never ruin a good story with the facts. Because the fact is, Chairperson, that there can be no doubt that in this decade, South Africa faces the greatest threat to our national security since 1994. Years of violent service delivery protests, violent crime, the collapse of local government and rampant unemployment and poverty have created the perfect storm of instability and insecurity, which now threatens the very existence of our constitutional democracy. In a country where 56 people are murdered and 105 people are raped every single day, where members of the police service commit some of the most heinous acts of brutality against our citizens, where the extortion of private businesses by criminal thugs goes unpunished, we have an incapable state governed by a criminal syndicate. You see, honorable members, the greatest security threat to our constitutional democracy is not external. It is hiding in plain sight among us. It is the African National Congress. This criminal syndicate masquerading as a political party has systematically dismantled the very state which is designed to protect its citizens. They have interfered with, infected, and infiltrated the state with their poisonous politics, and this has all been done by design under the real state capture blueprint, the National Democratic Revolution. You cannot fully understand the instability and insecurity in South Africa and the region without understanding the intimate role the ANC has played in creating these conditions, especially within the security cluster. Now, it's probably easy for many members on this platform to dismiss my claims as politicking, but they don't have to take my word for it. They can take the panel of experts report word for it uh, into the July unrest where they had the following to say about the ANC. Number one, the political environment which prevails, especially within the ranks of the ruling party, has become a source of instability and should be remedied. Number two, business delegations did not mince their words in asking us to communicate their frustration that the inner conflict of a political party has now become a threat to the stability of the state. Number three, the internal differences within the ANC contributed to the unrest and should be addressed as a matter of national security now. The violent unrest which seized our nation last year, honorable members, has exposed our security cluster as disorganized and divided. It revealed the executive overreach of cabinet ministers, best articulated in the panel of experts report as follows, and I quote, ministers seem to have been more directly involved in intelligence and operational work than their portfolios require, giving the appearance of an element of executive overreach or interference in the line function work of these services, end quote. We know that Minister Taylor has made multiple unreasonable demands to receive intelligence briefings, and we know his history of interfering in operational matters. So there can be little doubt that this report is actually referring to him. The Minister of Police has repeatedly misled the nation when he has said that the police have identified the 12 instigators for the July unrest Yet to date, not a single so-called instigator has been arrested. Why is this? Why have they not been charged for terrorism or any other crime for that matter? Minister Tele can simply not be let off the hook for either misleading the nation or failing to do his job or both. The panel report is scathing about the dysfunction caused by the broken relationship between the minister and the National Police Commissioner and cites this dysfunction as a cause of the police's poor response to the violent unrest. 
The minister is as much to blame as the National Police Commissioner, and the president must send a strong message to the security cluster by firing him. Honourable members, more than two decades of violent crime and instability culminating in the violent unrest of last year have laid bare to the region, the continent and the world the weakness of our security cluster. The looming threat of terrorist attacks on South African soil are becoming a realistic possibility against the backdrop of our failing state. If we are to strengthen the security cluster, we need to purge it of the ANC's political interference once and for all by limiting the powers of the executive and strengthening the powers of parliament. Parliament must play a more important role in not only holding the executive to account, but performing functions which would legitimately fall within our domain. One example of where Parliament can play an immediate proactive role is the National Security Council, which currently only exists by virtue of a presidential edict, to quote the panel report. Parliament must draft legislation to provide for oversight of the work of this council so that the development of the national security strategy, among other functions, are not left to the whims of securocrats in some dark corner. Cabinet has failed and it is now left to Parliament to drive the urgent reforms required to overhaul the South African police so that we can restore public confidence and trust in policing. This House must seize its full constitutional power to strengthen the security cluster while the President's Cabinet flounders. This House must rise up from the ashes and lead our nation to a more secure and prosperous future for all. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Whitfield. We'll now move on to Honorable Pillay. Honorable Chairperson, members of the Executive, members of the House, fellow compatriots and friends, good afternoon. The South African government declared the year 2022 as the year of unity and renewal, protecting and preserving our human rights gains. We debate today and an important month in our calendar, a human rights month. Ours is to always remember and to remind others that there was a time in this country when human rights were afforded to a small section in society and denied from the black majority. There was a time when South Africa did not belong to all who lived in it. There was a time when the will of the people did not prevail, when the wishes and aspirations of the majority were completely disregarded. It is important to remember that the constitution which we cherish and hold so dear is a product of many decades of struggle. It is through bloodshed that we attained our freedom. It is incumbent upon us to defend our democratic gains. Chairperson, the ANC's 54th National Conference reaffirmed the thrust of the mandate as outlined in the National Development Plan of 2030, that South Africa's borders are effectively safeguarded secured and well-managed. Conference accepted the security assessment which identified four categories of threats facing South Africa, which are threats to the territorial integrity of the Republic, threats to the authority of the state, threats to the safety and well-being of South Africans, and threats to the country's economic development. The government's 2017 White Paper on International Migration for South Africa raised concerns about irregular migration sorry, irregular immigration, noting that it led to unacceptable levels of corruption, human rights abuse, and national security risks. Conference therefore resolved the Border Management Authority Bill must be expedited and implemented in order to address the question of irregular migration and border management. 
The ANC government took a decision to establish a border management authority to take responsibility for all functions to the management of our borders in an integrated manner. The authority will be responsible for border law enforcement functions at ports of entry and all the borderline. The BMA will ensure a more efficient processing of goods at the country's ports of entry. It will strengthen our capacity to address border threats that could undermine the, the country's security and social economic development. If borders are porous and do not fulfill their function of separation, control and protection, dangers to the state come in the forms of transnational organized crime, the operation of armed violent groups, the movement of illegal and hazardous goods or communicable diseases. The BMA represents a comprehensive approach to border management by South Africa. It establishes an inter-ministerial committee chaired by the Minister of Home Affairs and comprises the Ministers of Defense, Police, State Security, Agriculture, Finance, Environmental Affairs, Health, Trade and Industry, and Transport. It also establishes a border technical committee from the relevant state departments and institutions and an advisory committee that the Minister of Home Affairs may appoint. The Border Management Authority Act was assented by the President and became effective as of 1st January 2021. The Commissioner and Deputy Commissioner of the BMA have already been appointed. For the time being, the BMA is set to remain incubated as a branch of the Department of Home Affairs until March 2023. By the 1st of April 2023, the authority is set to operate as a standing Schedule 3A public entity reporting to the Minister of Home Affairs. Chairperson, as we know, the Baybridge border post is one of our busiest ports. From busiest posts, we welcome the current modernization of its infrastructure at border posts. This will assist to facilitate greater trade. It has been reported that this project is at an advanced stage of preparation. This is indeed welcome. We appreciate the BMA will in no way work towards hindering any trade activities or market access between South Africa, African countries, and the world. On the contrary, it will bolster trade. Security and economic development go hand in hand. Chairperson, the leadership of Border Management Authority is busy putting systems in place to oper operationalize the BMA and the ultimate deployment of the border guards. The BMA will have its own unique look with a new insignia developed and approved by the Department of Home Affairs in October 2021. Consultations are currently underway with the Department of Trade and Industry and Competition and the Office of the State Heraldry regarding the registration and or protection of the logo. The benefit for the South African economy is that goods and people will move through these three, through these six busiest land ports at a faster pace and in a more effective and efficient manner. This will have specific and direct benefits for traders, trade carriers, and all those transporting goods, since the intention is that all movement through these ports will be processed once and jointly by South Africa and the relevant neighboring country. For a long time, the concept of the BMA was criticized by many people and political parties, prophesying doom. Today, we can see the great work of this ANC government. We are a nation at work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable uh, Pillay. Our next speaker is Honorable Msane.
Thank you very much, Chairperson. Let me take this opportunity to wish the Commander-in-Chief and President of the Economic Freedom Fighters, the voice of the voiceless, a blessed birthday. Chairperson, our conception of peace, security and stability is one rooted in complete freedom for humanity, absence of injustice from those holding power, absence of poverty and deliberate underdevelopment of people, countries and regions. It is not the presence of warm bodies of armed men and women browbeating a militant population into submission. In almost all instances in this country, in the region and in the continent, where there have been outbreaks of the type of violence that make the bourgeoisie anxious, those have been as a result of people demanding their rights to be human, to be respected. In this country, we have seen the security apparatus unleashed on people who assert their rights to have homes, to have basic services like water delivered to them, not to have their kids falling into pit toilets at schools because of lack of sanitation. The workers in Margana were killed because they demanded a living wage. Just in July last year, in what was wrongly characterized as an invasion by Mr. Ramaphosa, thousands of hungry, dejected masses of our people led a poverty uprising and expropriated foodstuff from shops and malls. The response of the state was to unleash more violence on them and still misdiagnose the problem. There will never be peace and stability in this country for as long as we have almost 50% of the population unemployed, for as long as we have half of those employed on a poverty wage that cannot put sufficient food on the table and a dignified roof over one's head. For as long as the land, the mineral wealth and the control of information is in the hands of the selected few. For as long as political leaders take their mandate from those with deep pockets who fund their lavish lifestyles. The unrest in Eswatini is as a, a result of King Swati's complete disregard of human beings and his feeling that Swaziland is his personal property. The insurrection in Mozambique is largely because of the exclusion and marginalization of people from benefiting from the resources of their land. When this happens, opportunistic Western influences will always find a way to fuel division and loot African resources. There will never be peace and stability in Congo for as long as the wealth of the country is controlled by Belgium and America. There will never be peace and stability in the world for as long as America's military industrial complex ferments conflicts all over the world in order to dominate, plunder and kill. What is happening in Russia and Ukraine, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Iraq, Libya and many other countries is a result of selfish greed by one state power that seeks to dominate and exploit others. Peace and security is impossible in circumstances like this. Addressing socioeconomic inequalities is at the heart of resolving these security problems, but we do need more. For our country, it does not help that we have poor security cluster with no intelligence capacity to detect and eliminate threats. 
The country's intelligence services have no idea of what kind of foreign threats are present in this country. There is no assessment of the dangers of foreign funded NGOs that are holding this country at ransom through courts. These are immediate security threats risking plundering our country into a deep hole which we cannot get out of. The private security industry, including foreign service security companies, have about 2.4 million registered security officers in the country, many of whom are heavily armed. In contrast, the South African police has just over 180,000 employees, including police and administrative staff. The army has less than 100,000 personnel. So the country is outnumbered and possibly outgunned by private security firms that are unregulated and not monitored by any credible intelligence and detective work. In the continent, we need a unified approach to develop to security and to in relations to foreign countries. This must include a common agreement to kick France out of the affairs of the continent, to remove all US military bases in Africa, to have a common approach to the management of the natural resources of the continent to benefit the people of the continent. There has never been a greater need for a federalized African government with one unitary voice on matters of security and development. Without unity, Africa will perish. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Msan. Our next speaker will be Honorable Kabekulu. Thank you, Honorable uh, Chairperson. <clears throat> Today, with compounding inequality, social division, and the rise of global terrorism, it has never been uh, more important that uh, our security cluster is capacitated and capable in fulfilling its mandate of on, in, in its mandate to all South Africans in ensuring that they feel and are safe. To this end, our security institutions must be both effective and accountable to our citizenry. All have. <laughs> important roles to play in alleviating the complex drivers of crime and, and safety, both nationally, regionally, and on the continent. Parliament is a critical check and balance, as well as an oversight mechanism between the executive and the people of South Africa, as we work towards citizenry-centric security policies. However, such oversight requires transparency from the executive and adequate capacity and research, among others, from our parliamentarians. Barriers uh, to, to, to such uh, interactions, such as restrictions on access to information, the ever-present culture of executive secrecy, and the lack of uh, availability of independence and unbiased uh, research material by the executive are all hindrances to effective parliamentary oversight. Institutional uh, autonomy and parliamentary level is essential if we are to we are, we are serious about uh, establishing effective parliamentary oversight of defense and security. We must limit uh, the executive from overstepping the scope and limits <coughs> of their mandate and thereby strengthen our security cluster 
and mobilize our citizenry into active participation. The building of, of trust is also primary to this endeavor and remains a critical ingredient for sustainable uh, democratic and civilian, <coughs> civilian sector security governance. Chairperson, our approach to good security governance uh, and oversight will require a holistic approach by various institutions, the executive as well as the public and private entities in order to ensure that uh, safety and security apparatus of the state, I'm sorry, always act in the best interest and for the protection of all members of the society, they said. The security sector must be able, ably capacitated in order to carry out its mandate. And it, in, in this respect, we must again ra rise the dark, or raise, sorry, raise the dark circumstances many of our subs and military uh, branches find themselves in, in respect of logistical and human resources. We continue to hear reports of SEPs, uh, South African uh, peacekeepers being placed in harm's way unnecessarily when they are sent beyond our borders on peacekeeping missions but are not adequately equipped. Such a situation is a travesty. And we take this opportunity to call upon the Minister of Defense and Military Veterans to address this house on the current state of combat readiness uh, and fitness of the peacekeeping force we have in Mozambique. Chairperson, it is imperative that uh, we ensure military professionalism in our, in our country, region, and continent. Politicization of uh, the military on the continent remains a grave challenge that must be avoided at all costs. Professional military education institutions must be bolstered, war colleges established, and best practice shared between government, governments uh, in Africa so that the citizenry of South Africa, the region, and the continent can feel and be safe. As per last our mandate, Chairperson, I thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Kulu. Uh, the next speaker is Honorable Kornewald. Thank you, Honorable Chair. In Afrikaans het ons een spreekwoord wat sê, jy moet eers in jou eie voordeur vee, alvorens jy verander wil voorskryf. As ek kyk na die onderwerp van hierdie debat, waar ons sê dat ons die veiligheidsgroepering moet versterk, dier die gemeenskap, ook in die streek en in Afrika, wil ek in hierdie debat sê, kom ons begin by die begin. Kom ons begin by ons eie huis. If your own house is not in order, how can you prescribe to the region or even to Africa? In fact, there are countries in the region that can prescribe to South Africa how they should manage their security cluster. And if I talk about the security cluster, we must also ask ourselves, what is happening in this security cluster? If a report ends on the table of the president, where it says that, Honorable President, you and your cabinet is actually responsible for the fact that we had the problems in KZN and in Gauteng last year. You are part of the cause and the reason why we didn't have proper security 
and intelligence reports, which is part of the security cluster. Then we must ask ourselves, what can we do to strengthen the security cluster? If we look at the criminal justice system of South Africa, then the Freedom Front Plus says that the criminal justice system is failing the people of South Africa. According to statistics from the police itself, only about 20%, actually less than 20% of crimes end successfully in the courts of South Africa. That means that a criminal has a 80% chance to get away with crime in South Africa. Even if we look at our murder rate in South Africa, if we look at gender-based violence in South Africa, the criminal justice system is failing the victims of this crime. Is it then no wonder that if you look at the causative factors when it comes to murder, which is according to the South African police services, that almost 1,200 people were murdered or killed for last calendar year in 2021 because of vigilantism and because of jungle justice, mob justice. Honorable Chair, that means a society does have no trust in the peace and can I say the security cluster to restore and ensure peace and law and order in South Africa. I want to say that the honorable member who had asked for this discussion must start with her own party. She must start with her own president as leader of the ANC and the cabinet. There's only way that we can strengthen this security cluster, and that is to replace the ANC government with a new government. I thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Kunewald. Uh, Honorable members, I'm informed that the ACDP will not be participating on this debate. I will now check if ATM is uh, going to be participating. ATM? No. We'll now move to Honorable Sheikh Imam. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Chairperson, I have said this before and I'm saying it again. Unless you deal with the socio-economic conditions under which our people live, you will do very little in eradicating crime and making South Africa a safe and secure environment for our people. Now, you know, the question that we need to ask is, with all the CPFs we have, the neighborhood watches, with the security industry, the South African police services, the law enforcement officers, and the Metro police, together with the community, we're still not winning the war against crime. So what is it that we are not doing correct? So if you're going to continue ha having a very high unemployment rate in the country, if you have a criminal justice system that does not work, while you have South African police services officers arresting people, the courts are releasing them. 
because they do not have the capacity to be able to deal. Unless you deal with the undocumented foreigners in the country and the forest borders that you've got, you're not going to deal with the problem. Unless you deal with the challenges we face with the free and the availability of drugs and alcohol and taverns being open to the early hours of the morning, you're not going to solve the problem. Unless you deal with the corruption and the looting, both from the private sector and the public sector, which robs the most vulnerable people of a quality of life in this country, you're not going to deal with creating a safe and secure environment. Now, coupled with that is the fact that the state security agency or crime intelligence, state security, crime intelligence, the military intelligence, the South African police service, metro police service are all compromised. When you have political instability in the country and infighting in a political party that governs the country, and you have people that have chosen sides, how can you have a stable environment? You certainly can't. And that is giving rise to what we have in the country currently. So we need to have a holistic approach to this. Let's look at gender-based violence. Despite all the efforts and billions of rent spent annually in this country, even with NGOs and NPOs, only thing you find is them coming and grandstanding outside the court when somebody's uh, been arrested for rape or murder. But what have they done to prevent this rape and murder? Very little or nothing. So again, it means you need to deal with the root causes of the crime rate in this country. If you don't deal with that, you, I can assure you, you will be spending money and achieving nothing. Now, we are grandstanding about the 12,000 police officers that we are now going to roll out. These 12,000 are going to be accommodated. First of all, it's going to take them a year or two to go out there and go study. Then they're going to get the experience. But in the meantime, you have lost the cream of the crop. You reduced your, 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 your retirement age. You have got those people that are skilled are leaving because they're not getting the necessary promotion. Thank you they very much. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Sorry. Your time is expired. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. Uh, our next speaker is... Uh, Honorable B. Swartz from the ANC. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson and Honorable Members. My debate will focus on the regional efforts within the Southern African Development Community, SADC, as a building block aimed at creating a peaceful and stable environment which is conducive for the economic integration of Africa and contributing, thus contributing to a peaceful, democratic, united, and prosperous continent. It is my considered view that SADC remains a key component of South Africa's foreign policy, which aims to promote political and social economic integration amongst its member states and to achieve peace, security, and sustainable development, allowing the region to address the key challenges of underdevelopment, unemployment, and poverty. Therefore, SADC remains the primary focus for the South African foreign policy to achieve regional development and integration within Southern Africa for the good of the continent. The SADC integration objectives are grounded in its 
original vision of a common future, of a common future in a regional community that will ensure economic well-being, improvement of the standards of living and quality of life, freedom and social justice, and peace and security for the peoples of Southern Africa. Chairperson, it is inspiring to witness that in 2020, the SADC Summit approved the SADC Vision 2050 and the Regional Indicative Strategic Plan 2020 to 2030. This vision is not only aligned to the African Union's Agenda 2063, but to the United Nations 2030 Sustainable Development Goals as well. The RISDP 2020 to 2020 drawing from Vision 2050 sets out a comprehensive 10-year development agenda for addressing social, economic, political, and governance issues in the region, which one of the six priorities focusing on the foundation priority of peace, security, and good governance. As seen, Chairperson, the peace, security, and good governance priority has been integrated into the RISDP to highlight the importance of peace, security, and good governance as an enabler for social economic development in the region. This priority is rooted in the SADC protocol of politics, defense, and security cooperation. Honorable Member, South Africa is also working within the SADC to provide post-conflict reconstruction in countries which emerge out of conflicts. Our country is amongst the guarantors of the peace, security, and cooperation framework for the Democratic Republic of Congo region. As we all know, the Great Lakes region has been met by decades of political instability and armed conflicts, forest borders, and humanitarian crises, as well as tensions over natural resources and other potentially destabilizing factors. A key milestone in the efforts to address these challenges was the adoption on the 24th of February 2013 of a UN-broken accord aimed at stabilizing the Democratic Republic of Congo and the region. The Peace, Security, and Cooperation Framework was signed by South Africa together with other 10 countries namely Angola, Burundi, the Central African Republic, the Republic of Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, South Sudan, Tanzania, Uganda, Zambia. Later in 2014, Kenya and Sudan became the 12th and 13th signatories of the framework. The United Nations, the African Union, the International Conference on the Great Lakes Region, and the Southern African Development Community, respective, are acting as guarantors of the framework. The PSC framework focuses on inter-alia first neutralization of negative forces, including the allied democratic forces, the democratic forces for the liberation Rwanda, the XM23 rebels, and the Lord's Resistance Army. Second, the repatriation, resettlement, and reintegration of disarmed combatants in the DRC and neighboring countries. Third, review of dialogue and political processes in the region, with particular focus on DRC, Burundi, South Sudan and Central African Republic. Last but not least, status of women participation in peace and political processes. Chairperson, South Africa has upon invitation participated in the meetings in the International Conference of the Great Lakes Region in an observer capacity where matters pertaining to the framework agreement are considered. In addition, South Africa is a member of the International Contact Group on the Great Lakes Region, where together with Angola, it has the opportunity to champion the case of the DRC, as well as influence decisions taken by the UN. Chairperson, at the continental level, the AU Assembly has issued a communique adopted by the Peace and Security Council at its 974th meeting held on the 22nd of January, 2021, reaffirming its eye-wavering commitment to continue to support efforts 
of the region in search of durable peace, security, stability, and social economic development. Chairperson, I will now come to the role of South Africa in the peacemaking process in the SADC region and across the continent. It is a well-known fact that South Africa was conferred the chairpersonship of the SADC organ of politics, defense, and security cooperation for a term from August 2021 to August 2022. The overall objective and function of the SADC organ on politics, defense, and security cooperation is the promotion of peace, security, and stability, as well as good governance and democracy in the SADC region. Under the chairship of South Africa, the organ's focus is on inter-area political conflicts in Eswatini, Lesotho, Mozambique, the DRC, and observation of elections. Chairperson, regarding the situation in Eswatini, we have noted that President Ramaphosa, in his capacity as chairperson of SADC organ, has appointed special envoys to engage with His Majesty King Mswati III of the Kingdom of Eswatini on the escalating security and political developments in the kingdom as a follow-up to a SADC organ fact-finding mission which visited Eswatini in July 2021. The outcome of multi-stakeholder consultations, including with the King, the government, civil society, stakeholders, and diplomatic corps on the ground, was the need for an inclusive national dialogue in an appropriate forum. Following a meeting between President Ramaphosa and King Mswati III on the 2nd of November 2021, it was agreed that the Sadat Secretariat would assist in the development of terms of reference to the national dialogue. A draft framework has been finalized and will be presented to the government of Eswatini, as Parliament will continue to conduct oversight to see how our government contributes on this development. Regarding the deployment of SADC mission in Mozambique, the SADC summit held on the 23rd of June 2021 approved the deployment of the SADC mission in Mozambique from the 15th of July 2021 as a regional response and support of the Republic of Mozambique to combat the threat of terrorism and acts of violent extremism in the um, Cabo Delgado province for an initial period of three months. Chairperson, we commend President Cyril Ramaphosa as the chair of the SADC organ for having convened the extraordinary organ TRACO summit on the 1st of October 2021 to receive a progressive report on the operations of the SADC mission in Mozambique, whereby the summit considered the report of the regional coordination mechanisms on the operations of SAMIM and also received an assessment on the situation on the ground from the government of Mozambique. The extraordinary SADC summit plus which was convened recently in January 2022, approved the progress report of SAMIM and urged member states to avail the necessary combat equipment and personnel to support SAMIM operations. It is also approved the framework for support to the government of Mozambique in addressing terrorism, which is essence lays out an exit strategy, which encompasses the thematic areas of politics and diplomacy, economic, social development, and humanitarian assistance military information and intelligence, as well as public security law and order. It is our hope that by the time the next organ trade summit convenes, much progress would have been made towards the stabilization process. Chairperson, with regards to the facilitation in the Kingdom of Lositu, we have learned that the mandate of President Ramaphosa as the SADC facilitator in the Kingdom of Lesotho was extended to August 2022. We also appreciate the considerable progress that has been made by the National Reforms Authority of Lesotho. Thank, Thank you. you uh, Thank you so much. Um, the next speaker will be Honorable Hendrix Aljama. I have noticed that even in the previous uh, uh, 
plenary was not in. We'll now move to the Honorable Minister of Police, which I'm informed that uh, if he's not in the platform, I'll now call the Honorable the Deputy Minister of Police, Honorable Matale. Thank you, Chair. Good afternoon to members. It's an honor and a privilege for me to take part in this important uh, debate by, by the House. Good afternoon to all. A safer South Africa is a prosperous South Africa. The National Development Plan is clear that personal safety is a human right. It is not just about putting away criminals. It is about putting in long-term security mechanisms to ensure people of this country are safe and feel safe. Safety is a necessary condition for human development and the improvement of the quality of life and productivity also rests on this right. Safety and security are directly related to socioeconomic development. A secure country encourages economic growth as it creates an environment fit for employment opportunities, improved education and health. A secure country also strengthens social cohesion and the ability for communities to thrive and achieve their potential. Chairperson, Last month, Statistics South Africa released the Governance, Public Safety and Justice Survey Victim of Crime Report for 2020-2021. Amongst other revelations, this report indicated that almost 85% of the country's population felt safe walking alone in their neighborhood during the day. During the night, the report indicated that only 40% of the population felt safe walking alone in their neighborhood at this time. It further elaborated that women in general felt safer walking alone in their neighborhood than males during the day. I bring this part of the report to the attention of this house as it demonstrates the way South Africans feel about their personal safety right now as we speak. It is such statistics that will guide us into the vision of this country as outlined in the National Development Plan Vision 2030, where all people in South Africa feel safe and enjoy a community life free of fear. It is through the realization of the subconstitutional mandates that this vision can be realized. Unfortunately, this alone simply isn't enough. Community partnership is essential to our work, honorable members. There is an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together, close quote. This proverb is more relevant now than it has ever been in the context of the security and safety of our country. Chairperson, Crime prevention is everyone's business. Community safety is everyone's responsibility. Coordinated partnership between law enforcement, business, civil society, and active citizenry in communities is our biggest trump card in the realization of a safer South Africa. This in line with reaffirming 
the police service commitment to building safer communities through community policing partnerships. Work continues in building communities that are morally alert through community empowerment programs. The journey to involve and empower all formalized community structures is in progress. We are continuing to work closely with community safety departments in all our provinces to ensure community police forums are functional, efficient, and up to the task. The revitalization CPF is in line with the recommendations made by the July Unrest Panel of Experts report. It will also see CPFs across the country undergo training programs with identified institutions of higher learning to ensure their functionality, responsibility, and empower them on a relevant legislative framework. Over and above this, SAPs continue to mobilize the communities, young and old, against crime. Chairperson, we know that many of our people have stood up and raised their hands, offering to play their part in the fight against crime. This is why the number of patriotic South Africans and foot soldiers in the form of community patrollers led by the CPFs is growing. Community patrollers are made up of thousands of men and women who are volunteering their time to assist the police to intensify visibility on our streets. We also appreciate the private sector and businesses involved in the overall fight against crime. This has seen the co-sharing of information to enhance operational responses, especially to property-related and other serious crimes. We strongly encourage all those who live within our borders to play their part in the fight against crime. Since an officer can be on every street in every corner, we count on our residents to be our additional ear, eyes and ears. Honorable members and chairperson, the subs will continuously assess its capacity levels and recruit accordingly. As per the response to the recommendations by the panel of experts reporting the July unrest, the subs also endeavors to strengthen technological capacity, upgrade equipment, and procure all tools of trade for officers to exercise their duties in the best possible way. Organizational restructuring of SAPs is no longer an unavoidable matter. It will be done to ensure the capacity at national and provincial level is equally matched by support structures at all levels. We have committed ourselves to train 12,000 new recruits to join SAPs. The new police recruits will add to the gains of SAPs and will encourage other things, also bolster the stretched units within the organization because it is important that the outstretched units within the organization are bolstered. These units include the public order police unit that will be brought to acceptable levels in due course. It is envisaged the youth who will be subjected to strict recruitment processes will also bolster the subs fight against GBVF. This crime remains a priority of the South African Police Service. Around 1,500 subs officers have been trained in victim empowerment, domestic violence, sexual offenses-related programs. These officers are the first point of call 
for victims of GBVF at station level, Chairperson. They will, they will man the almost 400 GBVF desks at police stations. The establishment of the GBVF desks will be finalized at the end of March this year. Protection of infrastructure is in keeping the inhabitants of the country safe as well as their property remains the core mandate of SAPS. We have in recent past seen the wanton destruction of property and looting of essential infrastructure. In the steps to action, the Critical Infrastructure Act that replaces the National Key Points Act 102 of 1980. I am pleased to report this, this house that the ministry has a step closer to establishing the Critical Infrastructure Council Chair. In closing, strengthening the security cluster through capacitation of the country's security services is non-negotiable. It's an operation that is in full motion and we're certain that will achieve our objectives. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Chair. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Deputy Minister. Uh, we'll now move on to Honorable Kola. Thank you very much, Chair. Over the past months, barely a day has gone by without revelations about the wild looting that has gone on at the State Security Agency. And add to that the crime intelligence catastrophe and the allegations of mass looting in defence that have hit the front pages. It's a total mess. So... Has any single person in the National Assembly made any move to tackle this issue? Has any one of these honourable members made any effort to tackle any part of state capture? Well, I did what I believe was the right thing two hours ago. I went and laid criminal charges against the man who, by all accounts, was the mastermind behind the State Security Agency Principal Agent Network, the looting of billions of rands and the illegal release of Jacob Zuma from prison. I laid charges again. I first laid charges against Arthur Fraser on the 9th of April 2009, and those charges mysteriously disappeared. The leader of the DA, then the chief whip, John Steenhuisen, laid charges against Arthur Fraser in 2017, and those charges mysteriously disappeared. So today I've once again gone and laid extensive and detailed charges against Mr. Fraser in the hopes that this time, after all those millions invested in the Zondo Commission, the security cluster may finally do what they're paid to do. Last year, South Africans were asking where the intelligence services were as the country burned down around their ears. Where was the domestic branch of the state security agency as billions of rands of our infrastructure was destroyed? Where was crime intelligence as our malls, businesses, jobs and careers were looted and burned? Citizens asked, do we even have an intelligence structure? This insurrection didn't simply self-ignite. Uh, everyone knew it was coming. Posters advertising when and where protests would take place were flying about social media days before the shooting started, days before the burning started, days before the looting started. In all, our security cluster has proven itself to be a multi-billion rand balloon of hot air. This country has known about state capture for over a decade. The high-level panel reported detailed how our security cluster was being used and abused as a fund sourcing mechanism by a faction of the ANC. It came out in 2018 and absolutely zero has happened since then. Not a single arrest, not a single rand recovered. Yet the recent batch of headlines read like this. A spy boss Arthur Fraser's 225 million rand COVID spying bill, how he seized power. 
His budget grew by 621% during his first year as intelligence boss, all detailed in documents and affidavits submitted to the Zondo Commission. Now that's from 42 million up to 303 million in 2017-18. Not a single arrest, not a single rand recovered. And this, rogue spies go on a spending spree after looting 108 million rand from state security agency. Parallel intelligence structures embarked on a festival of corruption which saw the state security agency lose 1.5 billion rand. Rogue spies allegedly bought several houses using the SSA funds then leased them back to the agency. The Hawks have known about this for three years. Not a single arrest, not a single rand recovered. The claim that is out there is that criminal networks which were captured and paralyzed the state security agency that was between 2008 and 2018 are still firmly entrenched in the organization. In fact, looking at the headlines of late, they are enough to ensure our laughing stock status in the world of global security for decades to come. Here's my personal favorite. Recently, ex-Minister of Intelligence, Ayanda Dlodlaw, brought back Fraser's right-hand man from suspension and promoted him, one of 26 irregular appointments made on her watch. Now, the irregular promo uh, promotions are being investigated, but by who? By the new minister under whom the Public Service Administration now falls, and that is, wait for it, Ayanda Dlodlaw. The way to strengthen the security cluster? Stop treating South African citizens with contempt, putting together panel after panel of experts and then ignoring their recommendations. Stop recycling those who have failed this country so abysmally, putting political expediency before our country. Start rewarding excellence and stop allowing unqualified cadres into every nook and cranny of the security cluster. Arrest and jail those who have looted the three services. Our so-called intelligence services were, to quote the then Minister of Defence, caught with their pants down, so busy infighting and looting that they didn't realise they were standing naked in front of the entire country. Above all, the honourable members of this august house must grow a backbone and for once be seen to be standing up for the voters who put them here. They deserve freedom. What have you given them instead? Just do it. This honourable members is how to strengthen the security cluster. I thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Caller. Honorable members, I'm informed that Honorable Pillay uh, saved two minutes that he is donating to Honorable Mutle, and that means Honorable Mutle has now eight minutes. I now call the Honorable Mutle to the platform. Thank you again, uh, Honorable Chair. Uh, I don't know uh, what does the honorable member from the DA knows about freedom because it is the African National Congress that ushered this freedom that he is purporting to know about. And if there is anyone to be arrested, uh, it is the DA government in the city of Cape Town for illegally establishing the intelligent unit, uh, undermining the constitution of this country. Uh, as they are known to be uh, a constitutional delinquent. The African National Congress Chair continues to be committed in creating a safe and secure uh, society for everyone. The NC appreciate that there is a need 
to have a safe and secure communities in order for economic activities to take place freely. A safe and secure environment in a clear attribute of democratic society, which the, the, the DA would not understand. With the attitude of the DA, it is more relevant now that the ANC must continue to emphasize and practice that the, the need to protect our democratic gain. We do not expect that uh, uh, they will understand the National Democratic Revolution. Their orientation is on the minority group that is privileged and all they stand for is the security of only the privileged, not of the society in totality. With the National Democratic uh, Revolution, uh, we seek to resolve the contradictions of class, gender, and national interests, which were posed to us by their own apartheid system. The, un the unrest was prompted, amongst others, by the level of poverty and unemployment in the, in the country. They must be aware that uh, no amount of security will uh, secure their privilege by stopping the hungry masses from taking from the privilege when that time, that, that time comes. Therefore, they must thank the African National Congress government for keeping the situation calm and under control. The EFF's problem is that uh, they suffer from the ideological concoction. Their politics are based on ethnic division, which is an extreme ethno nationalism. It's safe to say our democratic society institution execute their mandate in line with the constitution. It goes without saying that government of the NC holds the values of the constitution and does its best to deliver basic services to its people. And of course, we are, we are, we are, we are a government that uh, is elected every five years. Therefore, we've got a program of services that we deliver from time to time. And we can go back and look how much we have delivered, including in the security uh, uh, sector. I've heard one speaker saying that uh, uh, we are unable to deliver services. Unfortunately, we are not a religious organization. Therefore, we can't behave like... Uh, in the genesis uh, that there was a word, let there be everything and uh, everything was there. That is not possible. Honorable Hruneval, the African National Congress is committed in strengthening safety services to ensure that we respond efficiently and effectively to the threats and continue to keep order and stability while we continue protecting our de democracy. The NC is committed in taking the necessary step in assessing the threats to the country's security and shall come up with an effective responses uh, to those threats. Once one of these uh, measures is to intensify the public policing and make sure that the more police, there's more police uh, recruited, as you have heard from the announcement, that uh, the South African uh, Police Service will be recruiting 12,000 new recruits to join the ranks of the South African uh, Police Service. The president has done his part by availing resources in that uh, regard and ensuring that uh, uh, the SCCs are established to deal with uh, 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 prioritized uh, uh, criminal cases. We agree, of course, with uh, Honorable Sheikh Imam that uh, 
uh, we definitely must deal with the root cause of uh, the GPV. Hence, we are calling upon everybody to join hands uh, to fight this demon of uh, gender-based violence. The government alone cannot uh, 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 defeat this demon. It has been clear that there are threats to South African democracy. These threats come in different forms. However, their primary objective is to disregard the South African democracy. These threats include campaigns of public violence and destruction that took place uh, 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 last year, July is one of them. There are ongoing acts of theft, destruction of both private and public property and, and infrastructure and damaging of infrastructure. The NC in its commitment, it is commit, com, committed to protect the democratic gain. It further continues to protect the most vulnerable in our society, uh, the women and the children. The Democratic Violence Amendment Bill will be reinforced and close the gap, like including the elder abuse as the domestic violence and be treated with the seriousness it deserves. Gender-based violence is both criminal offense and a societal problem. The National Strategic Plan on Gender-Based Violence and Femicide as adopted must be strengthened. The NC is committed in moving in moving faster in ensuring that criminal justice system is equipped to respond adequately. And if there are any gaps, they will be closed as soon as possible. The criminal and related matters bill will ensure that the, those sentenced because of the gender-based violence, crime and femicide will get strict sentencing and strict bail provisions. The sexual offenses and related matter amendment B will extend protection to the victims of gender-based violence. The process of ensuring that uh, there is peace and stability is not merely a responsibility of police service. However, it is a collective effort from everyone. And indeed, everyone has a role to play in combating crime. It is out of this understanding that the NC calls for everyone to contribute in the process of developing a national uh, security strategy. The NC continue to demonstrate its commitment to the justice system. Hence, President signed three legislation, as I have indicated earlier on, uh, which are in the which signifies and plays a significant role in the fight against gender-based violence. That include harsh sentences to perpetrators and even provide support to the survivors of gender-based violence. What is key, Chair, uh, will be for our government that needs to be done. We understand that the physical uh, situation in the country is challenged. Uh, there's uh, inability uh, from the fiscal to fund the security uh, cluster adequately. Once we have achieved that, uh, on a, 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 a chair, we'll be able to deal with all the matters that are challenging the security cluster. Uh, this rhetoric that uh, the DA come with, uh, they must go back to Western Cape and do the right thing there and stop being delinquent. I thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable uh, Mutle. Honorable members, that concludes the debate and the business of this virtual mini plenary session. The mini plenary will now rise. I thank you. Recording stopped.